Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You hear us talk uh, at New Life, if you've been here for any length of time, you'll, you'll notice that we talk a lot about church planting, and uh, we pray about church planting uh, quite a bit. And in fact, our website or our vision statement, which is on our website, uh, mentions church planting. This is our vision here at New Life. We want God's kingdom to spread throughout Muncie, Yorktown, and the world as ordinary people are empowered for extraordinary living through the grace of the gospel and through the multiplying of gospel-centered churches. I'm not sure why the letters are running together there. The, the kerning is messed up. There's a typographic term for you. The kerning is messed up on that. Uh, but you can see in that vision statement that church planting, the multiplying of gospel-centered churches, is a part of what we want to do. Now, as you've heard us mention church planting and talk about this, a lot of you might be thinking, what, what exactly is church planting? Uh, why exactly are they always talking about it here? And how do we go about church planting? I mean, what is this, what is this all about? How is it going to affect me? When is it going to start, etc.? And, uh, you know, we've been throwing out these terms and not really spending much time elaborating on what church planning is all about. And so we're going to take some time this morning to talk about church planning. Uh, we are going through a series on 1 Samuel, and we will resume that series next Sunday. But today we're just going to devote time to what the Scriptures say about church planning. And our text is Matthew 28. So if you have your Bibles, open them <clears throat> to that passage, Matthew 28. Uh, the very end of the book, we're going to read uh, just verses 16 through 20. Uh, this uh, is a description of the words of Jesus shortly after his death and his resurrection, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he is giving what is commonly known as the Great Commission. And so that's what we're going to read here. If you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Matthew 28, I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the preaching of your word, to the edification of these people, and to the building up of your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think if you asked pretty much anybody in this country, in this community, in this state, if they thought that conditions in this country were getting better or getting worse, I think probably almost everybody would say they're getting worse. Things are getting worse in this nation. And, and, and why is that? There's a number of different theories about why things might be getting worse in this country. If you come from a more of a conservative mindset, you might say, well, the reason is that we are drifting from religion and we're getting increasingly immoral 
uh, and um, uh, traditional religion is being lost, and that's a big reason why things are getting worse. If you come from a, a liberal point of view, you might say the exact opposite. You might say, no, the problem is, is that there's too much religion. Uh, and in fact, religion makes people do stuff like what those bombers did in Boston this past week. You know, we're learning that they were committed to Islam, and people observe that, and they say, you see, this is what religious fanaticism and devotion does to people. It causes them to blow up bombs and, and kill people. Um, there's a guy named Ross Douthat who's written a book called Bad Religion. I've quoted him before. It was a, a wonderful book. I, I highly recommend it to all of you. And his theory is that it's actually not either of those. It's not that we have too much religion. It's not that we have not enough religion. The problem is, is we've got too much bad religion. And here's what he says at the beginning of the book. Yeah, I don't know why these letters are running together, but I think you can get the basic message here of the quote. It says, for all its piety and fervor, today's United States needs to be recognized for what it really is. Not a Christian nation, but a nation of heretics. <laughs> it's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? A nation of heretics. What Douthat is saying is that there, there's a lot of religion going on, but it's so much bad religion and heretical religion that this is one of the reasons why things are not improving in our nation. <clears throat> so as we think about that quote in connection with church planting, I know that what some of you might be thinking when we talk about church planting is why do we want to plant churches when there are so many churches already in this community, in this state, and, and in this nation? And, and here's one of the reasons why. Yes, there are a lot of churches that exist, uh, even in this community, uh, but a lot of those churches are dying. A lot of those churches are um, very liberal and departing from the basics of the gospel. Uh, just because a church exists and just because its doors are open doesn't mean Jesus is in the church. <laughs> a lot of churches are preaching things like the prosperity gospel, you know, telling people that if they have enough faith and they'll, they'll be healthy and they'll make all kinds of money. Yeah, there's a lot of churches, but there's a lot of churches preaching a kind of bad religion. And so that, that's one of the reasons why <clears throat> church planning is very important. And let me just make it very clear. I'm not suggesting at all that New Life has got it all down. I'm not suggesting that we're the, the, the perfect church. I'm not suggesting that we don't have issues in which we need uh, to improve. Uh, but what I want to show you here today is that the Scriptures call us as Christians to be serious about planting churches, and we as a local congregation want to take that seriously and want to be part of that. And So this is what I'm going to try to prove to you today. We're going to look at God's call to plant churching, uh, to church planting, number one, and then we're going to look at the world's great need for church planting, and then we'll look at your role in church planting. So first of all, Let's consider God's call to church planting. I mean, we certainly don't want to get involved in church planting if the Bible doesn't call us to do it. Uh, but I believe the Bible does call us to do it. And we see the beginning of that call here in Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission. And as I said, this is Jesus after his resurrection speaking to his disciples, and he gives a very clear command to his disciples in 
this Great Commission is mostly known for being a call to evangelize, to be missionary-oriented, to take the gospel to the nations and to the world, to share the gospel and call people to faith in Christ. And so we're going to look at this in some detail. What does Jesus say here in verse 19? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's his command. His command to his disciples. His command to the church. Go make disciples. Now, now how does that happen? How do we make disciples? Let me show you something that Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, go and make disciples by calling people to receive Jesus into their heart as personal Savior. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go and make disciples by getting people to answer altar calls. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go and make disciples by getting a decision for Jesus from people. He doesn't say that. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with those things. Uh, We should call people to invite Jesus into their heart to believe in Jesus. We should do that. But that's, that's not what Jesus is saying is the way that we make disciples. He, he goes on, the, the main verb here, make disciples, is fleshed out by two other verbs here in verse 19. The first one is by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Two ways to fulfill this task of making disciples. One, baptism. This is the way we make disciples. We baptize people. And we baptize them in a particular way. In the name of the triune God. Notice the, the singular nature of the word name there. Baptizing them in the name, in the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the three persons of the Godhead. So Jesus is calling to a Trinitarian baptism here. This is the way we make disciples, practicing baptism. But it's not just baptism. It's also teaching. In verse 20. We also make disciples by teaching these disciples to observe not just the popular things that Jesus has said, not just the warm and fuzzy things, not just the practical things, but to observe all that I have commanded you. We're called to teach everything that Jesus has taught. The whole counsel of God. This is the way we make disciples, baptism and teaching. Now, my question to you is this. Who is primarily responsible for baptizing and teaching? What group, what institution, what what body is primarily responsible for that task? My answer to that is it is the church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. If you look in the book of Acts, as the church is being built and is developing, you'll notice... Very frequently, people are baptized just as soon as they believe in Jesus. So here's an example. Acts 2.41, this is after Peter has preached, and he says, uh, Luke tells us that those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in the beginning of the church, this was their common practice, baptism. But if you look in 1st Timothy 3.15, these are Paul's words to Timothy, and he says, if I delay, Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What is the household of God? It is the church of the living God. What is the church? The pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is given responsibility to 
preserve the truth and proclaim the truth and teach the truth. So how do we make disciples? We baptize, we teach. Who is primarily responsible to baptize and teach? The church. What what is the Great Commission about? It's about evangelism. Let's just just put this all together. Here's kind of my thinking. Here's my argument. To, To evangelize is to make disciples. To make disciples is to baptize and to teach. The church has the primary responsibility for baptizing and teaching. Therefore, the best way to fulfill the Great Commission and to make disciples of all nations is to plant churches. Fulfilling the Great Commission is not just about sharing the gospel with somebody and getting them to believe in Jesus. As good as that is, and don't think that I'm discouraging that in any way, we need to do that, but I think so often we think that, well, if we get someone to just say they believe in Jesus, our job is done, they've been evangelized, they've been made disciples, and the Great Commission is fulfilled. And I think that is a wrong reading of what Jesus is saying. We've got to go the whole way and incorporate people into the church. That's what Jesus is saying here. C. Peter Wagner is a very famous writer, theologian, missiologist. He says this, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I don't even know who C. Peter Wagner is. Never heard of that guy. I don't really care what C. Peter Wagner has to say. And that's a perfectly legitimate issue. So let me press this point home even further. Um, In the book of Acts, you don't need to turn there, I've got the passages for you on the screen, but in the book of Acts, what we see is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, what Jesus has just instructed us here in Matthew 28. The beginning of that fulfillment, we're still working on fulfilling the Great Commission as a church even today, but the beginning of that fulfillment is in the book of Acts. And we know what the book of Acts is about. It's about uh, the fellowship of the early Christians, it's about... Uh, the worship of the early Christians. It's about the signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit did in the first century of the church. But you know what else Acts is about that we don't often mention? It is a book about church planting. And Paul, a central figure in the book of Acts, Paul we think of as a a great leader in the church, a, a theologian, an apostle, But you know what else Paul was that we don't often mention? He was a prolific and effective and fruitful church planter. That's what Paul did. Let me show you how how this um, is shown in the book of Acts. Um, Paul went on basically three major missionary journeys where he shared the gospel, made disciples. The first missionary journey is described in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. Now, here's how chapter 13 begins. Chapter 13 says, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, so there's already a church there in the city of Antioch. They're worshiping the Lord, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit says to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, that's, that's Paul, for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is the way church planning works. A church, like us, finds somebody, like Paul, Barnabas, and 
uh, we seek the direction of the Holy Spirit, and when we become under the conviction that this person is called to church planting, we send that person out into a community to plant churches. And here's where this begins in Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. Paul is sent out with Barnabas, and he engages, embarks on his first missionary journey. So I've got a map up here to show you what Paul did. This is his first missionary journey, and uh, you've got Antioch over here, and uh, Paul uh, and Barnabas set set out, and they go to uh, Seleucia, and you can read about this in chapters 13 and 14, the mention of all these, these cities. They sail to the island of Cyprus. They go to Salamis and Paphos. And uh, they come up here to these cities, to Perga and Italia, to uh, another city actually called Antioch in the region of Pisidia. And they go to Iconium. They go to Lystra. They go to Derby. They go to all these various towns. Now, what were they doing in all those towns? <laughs> On this first missionary journey, what what was happening? What was the goal for Paul and Barnabas? Well, we see that at the end of chapter 14, as the first missionary journey is summed up, and here's what it says. Referring to Paul and Barnabas, when they had preached the gospel to that city, I think that's referring to Derby at that point, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So what are they doing? They're fulfilling the Great Commission, right? They're making disciples. And how are they doing that? They're making disciples by preaching the gospel, by telling people about what Jesus has done and calling them to faith in Christ. And they're going back and they're strengthening the souls of these disciples. Now, very often, again, when we think of the, of the Great Commission, we just kind of end there. That's what the Great Commission is about, preaching the gospel, calling people to faith, and then we're done, right? But that's not where Paul and Barnabas stopped. They went on. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is what what Paul was doing on that map and all of those cities, what he was doing, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and then setting up churches and organizing all of those disciples in local congregations that worship Jesus under the authority and leadership of elders. The first missionary journey was about church planting. We see this come up again in the book of Titus. Paul's writing to Titus. Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. In every town where we went and preached the gospel, what I want you to do is get a church started there. That's what Paul is saying. The Great Commission combined with the activity of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and acts tells us that there is a clear call to church planting in the scriptures. And that call is for you and me as a local congregation. We're called to this task. And you might be thinking, yeah, okay, maybe that's true, but that was the book of Acts. That was at the very beginning of the, 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 the church, and there weren't any Christian churches at that time. So, of course, they'd be planting churches at that time, but now we've got plenty of churches, as I mentioned earlier. So, 
do we really need to continue this process? Uh, Is this something that is incumbent upon the church in 2013? Well, let's go to the second point. I want to show you the world's need for church planning now. Let me give you some hints. I'm going to throw a lot of numbers and statistics at you here. Um, Some history about church planning in the United States. In 1820, there was about one church in the United States for every 875 residents. In 1820. Between the years 1860 and 1906, there was a very prolific church planting movement in the United States. Churches from all traditions took this very seriously, planted a lot of congregations so that by the year 1906, there was one church for every 430 residents, almost doubled the availability of churches to the population in the United States. And that resulted in a tremendous increase of people who would call themselves religious adherents. And I know that's a very broad, kind of slippery term. What exactly does that mean? But that's the the studies that I'm quoting to you refer to religious adherents. And here's how this percentage grew. I'm guessing that most of these were Christian because at this time in the United States, not nearly as pluralistic as it is now. So uh, I think religious adherents, most of these people are going to be calling themselves Christians. 1776, 17% of the population said they were a religious adherent. I mean, that's surprising, isn't it? Don't we think of 1776 like everybody was a Christian then? 17% of the population. But by 1906, as a result of that church planting effort in the latter part of the 19th century, that number had risen to 53% of the population, calling themselves religious adherents. But here's what happened. At about this time, early 1900s, a number of churches had been established in various communities. And, And what the observers, the sociologists think happened is that as churches got comfortable in their communities and they kind of established their own turf, a spirit of competition began to set in. And the churches started thinking, you know, we, we, we own this town and we don't want others coming in. And so when other Christians decided they were going to plant churches, they perceived that as a threat and they discouraged those new church planting efforts. And so around about World War I, the effort to plant churches plummeted. And what happened is that a lot of the established churches, the people in them started to grow older, and young people didn't come in. And so the growth of those churches plateaued, and a lot of them just ended up dying off and closing their doors. And so here's what's been happening since the year 1900. Here's the number of churches in the United States per 10,000 people. This information comes from Mission to North America, which is the church planning arm of of our denomination. Number of churches in the U.S. per 10,000 people, 1900, 27. 1950, 17. 2000, 11. 2012, about 8. The presence of the church in this country has been shrinking for about a century. To the point now where in the United States there are 311 million people in this country and 250 million of them are unchurched. 
250 million of the 311 million people in the United States unchurched. That makes the United States the largest mission field in the world, third only to India and China. Not sure which is first, India or China, but those two. In terms of sheer numbers, the United States is third in the world in terms of the number of people who are unreached. I shouldn't say unreached. They probably may have heard the gospel, but unchurched, unchurched. Uh, Tim Keller says that in New York City, there are hundreds of churches being planted in New York City by Latin Americans, Asians, and Africans. Because Christians in the rest of the world are seeing that the United States is a fertile mission field. The United States is the most diverse ethnically diverse country in the world. Of all the countries that are represented in the United Nations, every one of them has some kind of demographic presence in our country. There are 65 different nations represented at Ball State University alone. And so in the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, you know, there is a great opportunity to reach all nations through church planting in this community and particularly in this country, because the nations are coming to us. They're in our own backyard. They are at our doorstep in the providence of God. That doesn't take anything away from the need for foreign missions. That's still an important task for the church. But there is an unprecedented opportunity for the Christian church in the United States to reach the nations. Let me share with you some, st- some statistics from Delaware County, where we live. This is from the year 2010. Population in Delaware County, 117,000 people, about. Of those 117,000, 27.3% are affiliated with a, again, another kind of broad term, religious congregation. (laughs) You know, what what does that mean? Uh, I mean, it could be a Mormon church or Jehovah's Witness church. Uh, it could be a number of churches that Ross Douthat says are bad religion churches. So, you know, that number is, is probably pretty high when we think about the number of people who are going to gospel preaching congregations. It's probably much lower than that. But even if we take that figure, 27.3%, what that means is that there are 85,000 unchurched people in this county. 85,000. And let, let's just say that we as a church in the providence of God were able to plant five churches in the next 10 years of 200 people each, which would be very, very hard to do. But if we were able to do that in God's grace, not impossible, if we were able, that would be 1,000 people that we'd be reaching. That would be about 1%, wouldn't it? A little more than 1% of the unchurched people in this county. Uh, I'm grateful to God that we're not the only church thinking about church planting. There are other gospel-preaching churches in this community who are also looking to plant churches. And so, again, I'm not suggesting we're the only ones doing this. We're grateful for all gospel-preaching churches that are doing this. But can can you see the need here? Can can you see why we want to do this? I was reminded of this uh, this week talking to Jamie Carter in in the office, and she was telling me about a class that she was taking at Ball State. And she said uh, that the professor went around to every member of the class and asked them if they had been to church the previous Sunday. And there were 15 people in that class. And of the 15 people, three of them said they'd been in church the previous Sunday. 
Now, that might not be too surprising to most of you, except when I tell you that the previous Sunday was Easter. 3 of 15. And of the three, one of them went to New Life, and the other went to Westminster. (laughs) And the third just said, it was just Easter, so I just thought I I ought to be in church. The other 12 were not in church. That's in Ball State. That's in Muncie, Indiana, which by most people's estimation is a fairly conservative area. Now, you might also be thinking, well, okay, we need to reach these people, these unchurched people. Why don't we just get them all to come to New Life or to Westminster or to any you know, other gospel-preaching church in this community? And we can do that, and we should do that. We should be looking to share our faith with each other. In fact, we want to train you to do that. And in May, we got Tony Gwynn coming back to give an evangelism workshop. Um, May, can someone tell me what the day is? Sorry, 4, May 4th, uh, Saturday here. So... Uh, we, we want to train you and encourage you to share your faith. But, but here, again, another statistic for you. Here's the way it seems to work out. With new churches, with church plants, churches that are five years old or younger, they typically get 60 to 80% of their people from among the unchurched population of their community. While older churches, and you know what? New Life is an older church at 20 years old. We're considered an older church. Older churches tend to get 80 to 90% of their new people from transfer growth. And the reason why is because church plants, you know, when there's nobody coming, you start to get desperate about reaching out to people. <laughs> you know, you're out in the community, and you're meeting people, and you're sharing the gospel with people because you want them to come. There's just a, a, there's a, a, a new kind of desperation, a good kind of desperation among church plants. And when churches get older uh, and they grow and there's more people in the church, there's more pressure upon an older church to meet the needs of its congregation. And that's not a bad thing. That's what a church ought to do. But that just ends up diverting a lot of resources that would have otherwise gone to reaching out to the community to meeting inward, inward needs. And sometimes, of course, I can go too far where the church is only concerned about itself, and that's a bad thing. It's difficult to, to strike that balance. But it's just typical that the newer churches are very outwardly focused. The older churches tend to be more inwardly focused, and that's why more unchurched come to church plants. So there's a great need for church planning. Well, thirdly, let me share with you this. What is your role in church planning? Two things here. One, I want to tell you what we're doing as a church, leaders in the church, and then let me suggest some things that you can do. What we're doing. At the denominational level... Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, that's our denomination. I was very encouraged to learn this. Um, I talked to Ted Powers, who's with Mission to North America. He told me that the PCA has planted 500 churches in the last 10 years. So that's, that's pretty good. Uh, Southern Baptists are very active in planting churches as well. Uh, with the PCA, of those 500 churches planted in the last 10 years, 90% of them have been particularize. That, that's the term for becoming self-governing and self-sustaining, becoming its own local congregation. Ninety percent of them in the PCA. And, and that's, that's tremendous. That's really good. Ed Stetzer, he's quoted on your order of worship. He's a, a big writer on church planning with Southern Baptists. He says that the PCA assessment process where we examine those men who feel like they're called to church planning to see if they're actually called, that the PCA's assessment process is the best in the world. 
Ed Stetzer says. So that, that's you know, we'll be able to benefit from that as a local congregation uh, as a result of being um, in the PCA. So we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, at the presbytery level, I think you've heard us say, our, our presbytery, that, that is the regional collection of, of churches in central Indiana that are part of our denomination, very committed to church planning. Uh, we planted in Lafayette a couple of years ago. That church has been particularized. Um, there's a church being planted in Bloomington right now by Dan Heron, who's been here and preached here a couple of Sundays. And just recently, we brought in a new guy to plant a church in Fountain Square, which is down just south of the downtown area uh, of Indianapolis. Uh, and the Presbytery is aware that this is something the New Life wants to do. And uh, they've given us counsel and are encouraging us to, to move forward. At the local level here at, at this church, um, the elders here have met and uh, we took some time one evening to devote ourselves to, to beginning to explore three questions, man, mission, money. Those are the three things we're trying to figure out. How do we discern who the right man is to be a church planner? What is our mission? Where do we want to plant a church? What, what target community should we look for? And, and we, we don't know that, and we would be interested to all of your input on uh, what you know about surrounding communities. We've talked about Anderson and Newcastle and Fort Wayne and, and maybe even still here in Muncie, a lot of options. But we need to work through that, and, and money, of course. Uh, we, we need to pray and consider ways that God might, might provide for us financially. So that, that's what we're, as a church, doing for this um, task of church planning. What, what can you do? Right now, what can you do? And, and, and we're still a ways away from this. You know, we still got this building out here, and we're not going to uh, plan a church while we're building. But when that building is up and going, we're, we're moving ahead. Uh, with church planning. So here's what you, right now, at this point, what you can do is please pray. Pray that God would give this congregation a renewed vision for this and an excitement about this. Pray for the leadership of the church as we consider the right man and the mission and how to find the money. And um, pray that the, the church plant would go, go well and that it would be a successful endeavor that would sp- um, that would uh, you know, create an excitement about other church plants that we can do and that the plants that, or that the churches that we plant could do. Uh, we don't want to just plant one church and be done. We want to keep doing it, and we want the churches that we plant to be planting churches so that there could even possibly be a church planting movement of sorts uh, going on here. So pray to that end. Secondly, tithe. That, that, that's one way that you can help us is by getting into the habit of tithing if you're not already because a church plant's going to cost money. I know everything costs money, and I know you're tired of hearing about money, particularly with the building. Um, but, but I can tell you this. Uh, the funding of the church plant is not going to be entirely up to new life. Uh, we will need to contribute some money to the plant, but the church planter himself will raise some of his own funds. Uh, there are some uh, financial uh, help available from presbytery and the denomination and the core group of people who are going to be gathered together by the church planner, uh, they will be encouraged to contribute also. So we don't bear the sole financial responsibility for the church plan, but we will have to, to contribute. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if everybody tithed, if everybody gave 10% of their congregation, we probably wouldn't have financial problems with the building or with the church plan. So let me encourage you to do that. Secondly, prepare Prepare yourselves for this. Uh, by that, I mean prepare for the fact that you know, some people might be sent away. Uh, but let me tell you, we're not going to make anybody go with the church plan who doesn't want to go. 
We're not going to compel anybody to go. But what I mean is that some people that you know might, might, be, might, might feel the call to go to a different place. And, and we need to be prepared to, to lose some of our resources for the sake of the building of the kingdom of God through multiple churches. So prepare yourself for that. Prepare yourself for the fact that the church that we plant might not look a lot like new life. I mean, we're not interested in just multiplying exactly what we do. We're going to look at the community and find out what would meet the needs of that community in the best way, and that's the kind of church we'll plant. But the good thing is that we know doctrinally where that church is going to come from because of our confessional stance here uh, in, in the PCA. And then lastly, uh, it's calling you to believe, to, to believe the promise that Jesus gives us uh, at the end of the Great Commission. He says this, to us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, Jesus is going to be in this. He's going to walk with us. Uh, if we believe that this is what he wants us to do, we can expect his blessing. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And, you know, when, when you get the, the call of God combined with the world's deepest needs, you get those two things together, you, you're on to something good. And, and something exciting. So believe that Jesus is in this uh, as we pursue this. So um, let me invite the worship team to come forward as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you for uh, your word, the directions that you've given us. Help us, Lord, as we seek your wisdom about how to carry out the task of church planning uh, in a way that brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.